0: welcome to the mini culture podcast a show that explores the untold stories of minnesota's past and present i'm your host john gebertatios archives tell an important story what we choose to preserve tells us a lot about our politics culture and consciousness but what about the people left out of our archives Today, researchers and activists are uncovering more stories of people who are history books ignored. KFAI's Kira Shukar explores a previously hidden queer love story found in Minnesota's archives.
1: On April 13, 1890, a woman named Rose Cleveland wrote a love letter to Evangeline Simpson Whipple. She might not know it yet, but Evangeline is the woman that she will love for the rest of her life. Rose and Evangeline are both single, independent, and wealthy when they meet in 1890. At age 33, Evangeline is already a widow, and she spends her time traveling while also managing multiple businesses in Boston. Rose's story is a little bit different. She's about 10 years older than Evangeline, and she'll never be married. She's made a career out of teaching, writing, and giving lectures. Her brother is Grover Cleveland, the 22nd president of the United States. When he took office in 1885, Grover Cleveland wasn't married, and so Rose briefly served as his first lady. But by the time she meets Evangeline in 1890, she's out of Washington and back to her writing career. Almost immediately, she falls in love. In the first letter that Rose writes to Evangeline, she says, Eva, do you know in what distress I was? Rose says that she's waiting for a letter from Evangeline asking her to visit. She's worried that she'll miss her chance to see Evangeline before she leaves on another trip. The letter feels rushed and frantic, like Rose is running out of time. Before she signs off, Rose says, If you knew all I could tell you. Do you? This ending is an opening to the relationship that's about to unfold between Rose and Evangeline. And it's also a hint to the story that comes after Rose and Evangeline, when Rose's letters arrived at the Minnesota Historical Society, or MNHS. This is a story of romance, of pain, and of resilience. It's about discovery, erasure, and activism. It's about Rose and Evangeline and so much more. And that last line of Rose's first letter invites us to listen. What what gets people excited about these letters or what gets you excited about them?
2: They are a record of love that refuses to die. Because Rose falls in love with Evangeline and that love never burns out.
1: This is Lizzie Ehrenholt. She's a historian at the Minnesota Historical Society and the editor of Minipedia, which is an online encyclopedia about Minnesota. Most of Lizzie's research is on queer and transgender history, and she spent a lot of time reading and studying the letters that Rose wrote to Evangeline. As Lizzie explains it, Lots of queer women had romantic and sexual relationships during this time period. For wealthy women like Rose and Evangeline, it wasn't hard to get together. Men and women were still kept separate in social settings at the end of the 1800s. These women had the time and the money to go to women's colleges and join women's only clubs where they could meet and sometimes fall in love
2: it really was not all that unusual for a couple of women to find each other and have this really intense bond. What's unusual about um, Cleveland and Simpson is that we have these letters that document some of the details of their relationship. Over the
1: next 30 years, Rose will write at least 80 more letters to Evangeline. Historians know that Evangeline wrote letters back, but only Rose's have survived until today. All of these letters are beautifully written, And they're full of details about Rose and Evangeline's relationship. They send gifts, flowers, and poems to each other. Rose comes up with pet names for Evangeline, like Granny and Wingy. In one letter, Rose writes that, You are mine, and I am yours, and we are one. And our lives are one henceforth, please God, who can alone separate us. Then she asks, Am I too bold, Eve? Tell me. The letters from this early part of the relationship are full of lines like this, where Rose declares her love for Evangeline, then seems to doubt herself, as if her passion is too much for Evangeline to handle. How I love you, she writes. It paralyzes me. But Rose and Evangeline's relationship isn't easy. Just six years after they meet, Evangeline decides to marry Henry Whipple, who is the first Episcopal bishop in Minnesota. She moves to Faribault, just south of the Twin Cities and far away from Rose. Evangeline's decision breaks Rose's heart. She finds out about the engagement just a few months before the wedding.
2: She accepts her role as Evangeline's friend after she marries. She keeps writing to Evangeline Even though the details of those letters are kind of unimportant, what's really important to me is the message, which is, I want you to be in my life, and I want to share with you what I'm doing every day, no matter how mundane it is. She keeps doing that through the 1890s, past 1900, all the way up to 1910.
1: Rose is persistent, but she's also a devoted friend, and she gives Evangeline space during their separation which lasts well beyond Evangeline's marriage. Henry Whipple passes away in 1901. He and Evangeline are only married for five years and she decides to stay in Faribault after his death where she becomes a leader in the community. For years, Rose and Evangeline write back and forth to each other. Rose asks Evangeline to visit or to plan a vacation with her. These letters are far less passionate than the ones that they wrote before Evangeline's marriage, but Rose's devotion to Evangeline is still palpable. Eventually, Evangeline decides that she's ready to leave Minnesota and be with Rose. In 1911, they travel to Italy together to visit Evangeline's brother, and they spend the rest of Rose's life in a villa near Florence. That's where Rose's letters stop. These letters tell this entire love story, but the plot doesn't end with Rose and Evangeline in Italy. Like Rose, the letters are persistent, and they have more to tell us. Evangeline eventually passes Rose's letters down to her stepdaughter, Jane. Then in 1969, Jane's granddaughter, donates hundreds of her family's documents to the Minnesota Historical Society in a collection called the whipple Scandrett Family Papers. Buried inside those documents are Rose's letters. As the archivists at MNHS are combing through these documents, 10 of Rose's letters grab their attention.
2: And in particular, there's one letter that is pretty clear about their sexual connection. It describes a mutual orgasm. And it's not clear if this letter is is recounting something that actually happened. It might be more imagining what could happen or just Rose Cleveland talking about the intensity of her attraction. But I think it pretty much establishes without a doubt that they had a sexual chemistry. So then at that point, the people who are arranging and describing the collections report this. To the people they're working for, and there's a lot of discussion. Okay, what do we do?
1: Lizzie has talked to a few of the people who worked for MNHS in the 1960s, and they remember worrying that keeping the letters in the archive would lead to a scandal. They were afraid that either the museum or the Whipple and Scandrett families would come under fire if it got out that the collection had lesbian love letters in it. So the people at the Historical Society got together to make a decision about the 10 letters.
2: So I I found a memo from that year explaining that decision. In box 10 of the Whipple Scandrett family papers are letters I'm abbreviating here, which strongly suggest that a lesbian relationship existed between the two women. It has been decided to place these letters in a sealed box, closed to public use, and to review their status again in 1980. Uh, And that's all I know, that's only a few sentences
1: the archivists catalog and organize the rest of the papers in the collection. Meanwhile, those 10 letters, they sit in the History Center, sealed for eight years. Now, let me be clear, sealing materials off because they point to a lesbian relationship, that doesn't happen very often in archives today. But it wasn't that uncommon in the 20th century.
2: There's recognition these days that archivists have a responsibility to restrict only as much as is necessary, you know, and the days when it was deemed necessary to restrict something because it was um, queer, (laughs) those days have certainly passed. But in the 20th century, yes, that certainly happened often.
1: When Lizzie thinks about the 1969 decision to keep those 10 letters out of the archive, She puts it in the larger political context of the time period. Basically, when there's a climate of homophobia and transphobia, archivists are more likely to hide materials that point to queer relationships. That's not always because they have a personal bias against queer people, but they're more likely to view those materials as controversial.
2: But then when you have this absence in the record, When historians go to look at that record, they don't find evidence of queer lives. And so then when those historians go to write their books, the books and the articles and their studies don't mention queer lives because they didn't find anything. And then when teachers go to the books and the articles to teach their students, they fail to cover queer history in schools and colleges. So ignorance persists. And it allows homophobia and transphobia to continue. And then you're back to step one, which is the climate of fear, basically. And this is a circle.
1: The decision to hide those ten letters severely restricted what historians could write about Rose and Evangeline. Even though the rest of the letters were available, the collection was incomplete. At this point in the story, I always come back to the moment when Rose found out that Evangeline was going to marry Bishop Henry Whipple. Wingy, she says. What is yet for us, I cannot see. But I think you will need me yet. In a future, perhaps. I do not think you need me now. At the end of her letter, Rose flips the page over and writes, I cannot speak nor write of my love. You know. There is so much pain in this letter. It captures Rose's heartbreak, but it also reminds me of the hurt that the decision to restrict these letters caused, not only to queer research, but to the entire queer community. It radiates through libraries, through classrooms, and through courtrooms. But there's also hope in this letter. There's resilience. And that's true in the archive as well because in 1978, a group of researchers and activists came together to bring these letters back into the public eye.
0: I'm Jonathan Ned Katz. I'm an independent scholar. I've been doing this research on LGBT history since the early 70s.
1: In 1978, Jonathan heard about the letters from Barbara Giddings, who was a well-known lesbian activist at the time. Barbara had gotten an anonymous letter saying that there were these unlisted and uncatalogued letters in the Minnesota Historical Society archive.
0: So I wrote gingerly to the Minnesota Historical Society and said something like, oh, I heard there was this own box.
1: Because of Jonathan, MNHS decided to remove the restrictions on Rose's letters and file them chronologically with the rest of the Whipple's Gantret family papers. Like the letters in this collection, Rose and Evangeline spent years apart. But they eventually found their way back to each other. For seven years, they lived in a villa together near Florence. Then, in 1918, Rose caught the Spanish flu and passed away a few days later. She was buried near their villa, and when Evangeline passed away more than ten years later, she was buried next to Rose, as she had requested in her will. Although it's been more than a century since Rose died, her memory continues in the archive, And since her letters were brought back together in 1978, they've had a new life. As soon as the letters were available to the public, researchers began reading and writing about them. In 2019, Lizzie worked with another historian named Tilly Lasky to transcribe and publish Rose's letters in a book called Precious and Adored. The book is available through the Minnesota Historical Society Press. In the 1980s, Jonathan wrote an article about Rose and Evangeline called The President's Sister and the Bishop's Wife. It's just one of the many articles that he's written about queer history throughout his career.
0: It was an interesting way of getting the word out about some of the fascinating, fascinating history that we've only begun to discover.
1: These letters are just one piece in a long queer history. Their story reveals so much not only about queer lives in the early 1900s, but also about how recently queer histories were restricted in our libraries. All of Rose's original letters are held in the Gale Family Library at the MNHS headquarters in St. Paul. They're scattered across three boxes in oversized sage green folders. And anyone can make an appointment to go see these letters in person. In box two of the whipple Scandrett family papers, there's a folder labeled Correspondences and Miscellaneous Papers from 1890. The first document in the folder is a letter dated Sunday, April 13th, 1890. A red seal at the top of the page reads, Pinecrest Inn, Paola, Orange County, Florida. Rose's large, looping handwriting jumps off the page. And there, in the margin, as if she has turned the page and written it as an afterthought, Rose says, If you knew all I could tell you, do you? For KFAI, this is Kira Shukar.
0: support for miniculture on kfai has been provided by the minnesota arts and cultural heritage fund season seven of the miniculture podcast is edited and executive produced by julie sensulo new episodes coming soon so subscribe to miniculture wherever you get your podcasts i'm your host john Gabertatios, and thanks for listening